Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Let us open our hearts, lower our defenses, and listen for what God might be saying to us today. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the word of the Lord. The summer I graduated from college, I moved to the desert, specifically to a small town in New Mexico off Old Route 66. I was there to teach high school as part of the Teach for America program, which trains recent college graduates as teachers and then places them in schools in low-income communities. It was difficult work for which I was barely prepared. And especially when evening rolled around, it got lonely. So I would try to fill the silence of my little desert house however I could. Like sometimes I would bake or play my guitar. I had an old TV with a built-in VCR and I used it to play my collection of secondhand videotapes, mostly comedies from the 1980s like Say Anything and Breakfast Club. And beyond that, I did a fair amount of lip syncing in the bathroom mirror with a hairbrush. <laughs> and all of those things helped. 
but eventually I would break down and call my mother. If, if I had gotten through the day without calling her once already, because I was really trying to limit myself to one call, only because I didn't want to scare her by seeming too sad. But the truth is, caught up as I was in the struggle to be my own person, to become myself, I often longed for home, for the feelings of acceptance and love which I thought I could find there. I imagine that Jesus felt a similar longing as he walked toward Nazareth. He was hoping for a warm hometown welcome, hoping to be affirmed in who he was after busy months of ministry. But of course, that's not what he got. Instead, Jesus was questioned and rejected. It was all a bit off-putting because by this point, Jesus had come into his own as a teacher and a healer and a prophet. But at home, it was hard to be those things. It was hard to be fully himself. Have you ever had an experience like that? I think most of us can relate to what Jesus went through, maybe a little too well. The fear of rejection is strong in us. It's a terrible feeling. And so I'm amazed that at the very moment of rejection, Jesus musters the kind of comeback most of us only dream up days later. Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, among their own kin, and in their own house. Now, on the one hand, this is just an observation on Jesus' part. He is a prophet, and his family and friends are not treating him as such. But Jesus is also throwing some shade, because dishonoring prophets and refusing to hear them was one of Israel's oldest sins. We heard it in our first reading this morning how God warned the prophet Ezekiel from the start that the people Israel were going to be impudent and stubborn and unlikely to listen to anything he had to say, even though it was for their own good. God said that because Israel was a rebellious house, they would refuse to hear the prophet's voice. So Jesus is suggesting that the people of Nazareth are falling into that same old bad habit, refusing to hear from God, and that constitutes rebellion against God. But I can have sympathy for a rebel. Remember, I've seen a lot of 1980s teenage cinema, so I know that every rebel has a softer side. There's more going on underneath. There's a story, often a painful one. At the time of Ezekiel, consider that God's people had just endured another violent occupation, this time at the hands of the Babylonians, and they were living in exile hundreds of miles from home. In the midst of grief and suffering, if they did not want to hear a prophet saying they still had to change and they still had to be better, I can hardly blame them. And of course, Jesus' generation knew its own heartache. And so do we 
pain gets in the way for all of us, makes it hard to trust, and makes it hard to hear a word of hope. I really think that the people who gathered at Jesus' home synagogue were a lot like you and me. They'd gotten up that morning and gone to the house of God. They were seeking God on purpose because they trusted that God was still speaking and they wanted to hear. But when the living word showed up in their midst, they were skeptical and defensive. They took offense that Jesus was so ordinary and so familiar, and yet he acted like he knew so much. They took offense that while, okay, he had wisdom and he had power, he did not have the proper credentials. They wrote him off as an attention-seeking amateur, just some guy. But the truth is, find reasons not to trust Jesus. It's not that we reject him. We would never dream of dishonoring him. But we do hold ourselves back. And we hold him at arm's length. Maybe it's that, like the hometown crowd, we know Jesus. But we know a lot of other things, too. We know how people are. We know the ways of the world. We have our experience and our expertise. We have other ideals, other beliefs or values that make sense to us. They have a place in our lives and, well, Jesus has his. And that way, we can be safe and normal. We don't shake anything up. And nobody shakes us either. In fact, nothing happens to us at all. That's the cost of rebellion. Nothing happens. Nothing happens in Nazareth. The people who expected nothing from Jesus got nothing from Jesus. And that was all. And friends, I'm afraid that we might run the same risk when we start to think that we have Jesus pegged. We run the risk that nothing will happen. And that would be a terrible thing when there is so much that we need, when there's so much in us that's still to be healed. The good news is that Jesus presents an alternative for well-meaning church people. That alternative is discipleship. Now, you might think that after the whole Nazareth debacle, Jesus would take a step back and reassess his approach to ministry. But he kept going. And he even started sending out his followers to do the same exact things that he was doing and to assume the same exact risks. Sure, they could take a buddy and a simple staff to fight off wild beasts. But otherwise, Jesus called his disciples to profound vulnerability. Without money or food of their own, they would have to depend on the kindness of strangers. They had never worked miracles before. 
And they can't possibly have been very good preachers, at least not at this point. All they had was this one sermon about how people needed to repent to change their lives. The disciples weren't ready. So how could it possibly work out? Like, maybe they would receive welcome in a few villages, but there was no guarantee they would not suffer the same rejection and failure that Jesus had. Discipleship was a risky business. But I wonder if you or I would ever describe discipleship that way. I mean, honestly, if someone were to ask you what it's like for you to follow Jesus, would you say it was risky? Does the discipleship we practice ever open us up to criticism? Does it open us up to failure? I have to wonder if discipleship for us is ever so courageous as what Jesus first described. But could it be? I suppose what I've heard in this text and what I wanted to share with you today is that we have a choice. That may be oversimplifying it just a bit, but it seems to me that you can choose to be the rebel. And if you do, you'll probably be pretty cool. But in going your own way, you might also find yourself on the periphery of this major thing that God is doing. Alternatively, you can choose to be a reject like Jesus, a person who went through the world embarrassingly invested in love and completely unprotected from pain. And yet, Jesus found his place at the very center of God's purposes, at the very heart of life. Two options. Two roads diverged. And we all know what we're supposed to say. But it's actually a tough choice. And one I think one of us have to make day to day or even minute to minute. To paraphrase Richard Rohr, it takes a lot for us to worship and to follow this naked, homeless, bleeding loser who was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. All we want is to be winners. So choosing the way of the rejected one, it's tough when you consider all you have to lose. So why do we do this? Why do we keep trying to take a closer walk with this guy? I could give you a catechetical answer, tell you that you're supposed to, but I don't really imagine that would work any better for you than it does for me. I wonder if you aren't here, if you aren't on this walk, because at some point you've seen God's promises come true. Maybe it was only once or twice, but you saw, you saw for yourself that the way of the cross is also the way to joy, not to comfort or even happiness, but to joy, joy like twinkle lights, as author Brene Brown likes to say, 
joy that's not a constant, joy that comes to us only in moments, in ordinary moments. But there it is, joy shining bright against the darkness. You've seen it. And you know in your heart that if you follow Jesus, you'll see it again in all the places that you least expect. Beauty in the mess, life bursting forth where only death should be. What better sign of this do we have than what is right behind me? The very instrument of pain consumed in color, in beauty, and in light. If you have lived any part of that story, you know that there's no standing on the sidelines now. Going all in is the only way to go because if you numb the pain, you will also numb the joy and heaven forbid that. But friends, for all the moments when you were less certain, there's a story I want you to consider. You'll have to forgive me because I've only been here for a year and I don't even preach all that often, but I'm about to introduce my second sermon illustration from the Chronicles of Narnia. So at this point, I'm burning through them, which down the line is either going to mean writer's block for me or boredom for you when I repeat myself. But hear this. There was a little girl named Jill. And Jill was an outcast at her school. She was relentlessly bullied. And in fact, she was hiding from her persecutors the day that she was first whisked away to the magical land of Narnia. Her classmate Eustace, who had visited Narnia before, had found Jill hiding behind the gym, and he had seen how very much she was suffering. And it was his idea that they should ask Aslan the lion, the creator and ruler of Narnia, to rescue them. And so they asked, and it worked. But when Eustace and Jill arrived in Narnia, they were almost immediately separated. So when Jill met Aslan for the first time, she was alone. And right away, before they were even well acquainted, Aslan announced to Jill that she had a task to do, a task for which she had been called out of her world and into his and this puzzled Jill. This really puzzled her because wasn't it the other way around? Nobody called us, she said. It was we who asked to come here. Eustace said we were to call to, to somebody. It was a name I wouldn't know, but perhaps somebody would let us in. And we did call. And then we found the door open. But Aslan said, you would not have called me unless I was calling to you. Friends, sometimes all we have of faith is a wordless longing for our true home. But for God, this is enough. In terms of discipleship, it's a start. The need itself is what opens us up to God and to becoming who God and no matter where you are on your journey, that work of becoming 
who God has called you to be, it's not finished yet. So all of us would do well to consider that there may be a new door that's opening, a new adventure about to start. Quite simply, if you are here, God is calling you. So, disciple, pick up. Please pray with me. Holy One, you know the pain and doubt and fear that hold us back from you. And still, you love us without restraint. Give us the courage to follow you now. Even when the way is rough and steep, even when the risks are high, in those very moments, give us grace to lose ourselves in you and to live for your vision. And so lead us into joy, lead us into light, gather us to yourself, and then, O oh God, guide us out again. In Jesus' name we pray.